0: Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes. However, when we begin a new series, it is often helpful to give ourselves a few extra minutes in order to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The book of Exodus is really better thought of as chapter two in a five-chapter-long story known as the Pentateuch. In fact, the book of Exodus in Hebrew begins with the word and. The initial vav connects what Moses is saying here with what Moses had just finished saying in the book of Genesis. So there is an obvious continuity here, and it's important for us to see that. In the book of Genesis, God told Abraham that his descendants would go down to Egypt for an extended period of time before eventually coming back to the land of Canaan. Genesis 15, 13 to 16 records God as saying, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs "'and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, "'you shall be buried in a good old age.'" And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Genesis 15, 13 to 16. Now, at the very end of the book of Genesis, we see the first part of that story that we just heard about in Genesis 15. Joseph is sent ahead of his brothers in the providence of God to establish favor within the land of Egypt. Thus, when a terrible famine strikes the land of Canaan, the people of Israel are able to survive and thrive in the region of Goshen, which was in the eastern part of the Delta region of northern Egypt. That's where the book of Genesis ends, with the people of Israel thriving in Egypt as a privileged minority. The book of Exodus begins with a sudden change in their status leading to an extended season of severe and dehumanizing oppression. And that story, of course, is bound up with the very difficult question of when all of these things should be understood as having taken place. There are two competing opinions with respect to the dating of the Exodus. And the reason we can't be as certain here as we might like is because Moses does not actually name any of the pharaohs that feature in this story. And generally speaking, the Egyptians did not record their own failures and disasters. They recorded victories and triumphs, so we aren't likely to discover the story of a successful slave uprising that ended in the loss of a chariot brigade in the Red Sea. That is just not how ancient history was written. So we have the story from Moses' perspective. But as to where it fits into what we know of Egyptian history, that's where there is a fair amount of continuing debate. Now, as I said, there are two entirely reasonable options supported by seemingly an equal number of devout and reliable scholars. This is not one of those situations where liberal scholars who don't take the Bible seriously are on one side of the issue and conservative scholars who believe in inerrancy and love Jesus are on the other side. This is not a test of faithfulness. R. Alan Cole puts it this way. The date of the Exodus is not a matter on which we can make dogmatic assertions. Equally great scholars and equally devout Christians have differed and will doubtless continue to differ here. The matter is not one of orthodoxy or conservatism, but of historical judgment in an area where evidence is scanty. Closed quote. I think that is well said. You can be a good, orthodox, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian and understand the Exodus as taking place in or around 1450 B.C., and you can be a good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian and place it at or around 1280 B.C. There is a good argument to be made for either of those options, and no matter which option you choose, it shouldn't really affect how you interpret the story that we are reading. Here's what we know for sure. It definitely happened before 1220 BC. We know that because there is a reference to a victory of the Egyptians over the people of Israel in the land of Canaan by Pharaoh Merneptah in 1220 BC. Remember, the Egyptians recorded their victories, not their defeats. So we have a dated outside reference to the Israelites being in the land of Canaan by 1220 BC. So the exodus must have taken place before that. Now, some people think that we can get an exact date out of 1 Kings 6.1, which says that the exodus occurred 480 years before the founding of Solomon's temple. But scholars are still trying to figure out exactly how the Israelites were using numbers and dates at that time in their history. The number 480 could mean 480 years, but it could also mean 12 generations. 480 is 12 times 40. A generation was roughly and generally understood as 40 years, but it was almost never actually 40 years. It was just a rough estimate. And so that leaves a window that basically stretches from 1250 to 1450 BC. And many scholars feel that the later date corresponds better with what we know about the history of the region. Regardless, it was definitely before 1220 BC, and it was definitely after the expulsion of the Hiscos invaders in 1550 BC or thereabouts. In fact, a lot of what we see in the story reflects the reaction of the Egyptian leadership to that traumatic experience. The Hiskas invaders were a group of Asiatic people, many of whom were Semites, like the Israelites, who invaded and actually took over Egypt for a couple of hundred years. One of the things you realize when you read the history of Egypt is how often they were ruled by foreign powers. Egypt was a reliable breadbasket, and so every empire in the ancient world wanted to rule over Egypt to ensure their own food supply. Egypt was unique because all of its agriculture was based on the inundations of the Nile, meaning that they were essentially drought and famine-proof, even if it didn't rain there was still going to be grain in Egypt. So everybody wanted to control Egypt. And when there was an extended drought in the region, everyone wanted to live in Egypt, and that could create certain social and political problems. The famine mentioned near the end of the book of Genesis did not just affect the family of Jacob. It affected the entire Middle East. And so it appears that there was a mass migration of Semitic people into the land of Egypt. Historians refer to that as the Hyksos invasion. It was almost certainly during the rise and reign of Hyksos dynasties that Joseph rose to power in Egypt. But then, after a considerable struggle, these invaders were cast off and a native Egyptian dynasty took over. And Egypt, for several centuries afterwards, had a particular hostility toward all non-Egyptian peoples living in their midst. You can hear that tension in the opening verses of this story, particularly in verse 8, which we'll get to in just a minute. Now, in terms of the structure of the book, it is actually quite straightforward, and it establishes something of a pattern that is followed quite closely throughout the canon. The first half of the book tells the story of how God saves and delivers his people. The second half of the book tells us how those people who have been saved and redeemed ought to live as the people of God, which, of course, is exactly how many of the letters of the Apostle Paul are laid out. The first three chapters of Ephesians, for example, tell us how God has saved and delivered a people for himself. The next three chapters in Ephesians are all about how those people should live now as saved people. The hinge in Ephesians is Ephesians 4.1, dead smack in the middle of the letter, which says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, Paul says, given what God has done for you, here is how you should walk. This is a worthy walk for saved people. Well, that is almost identical to the hinge that we see in the book of Exodus. Exodus 20 verses 1 to 3 at the dead center point of the book of Exodus says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Closed quote. So God says, I delivered you out of Egypt. I saved you by grace. Now, here is how you should walk as a saved and redeemed people before me. That is the rhythm and the structure of any gospel book, Old Testament or New. First, we talk about grace. Then we talk about response. That's how this book is put together. That's how the Bible is put together. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's word to us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, we should probably acknowledge here that it feels odd to modern, certainly western readers, for a book to begin with a list of names. But it did not seem odd to the original readers. Remember, this book was likely written by Moses during the wilderness wandering, so the vast majority of the original hearers would have had a personal connection to at least one and probably several of the names we just read. These were their great-great-grandparents, and so Moses was saying, this is your story. And that's important for us to remember. This is a story about real events that happen to real people. So it is a true story and it is our story. The Apostle Paul said that this was our story as well. If we have been grafted into this family through faith in Jesus Christ, then this is our story. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-6, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did." Close quote. So. This is a story about how God works with our family in order to save and sanctify a people for himself. That's why it begins with a long list of personal names. Our family went down to Egypt and our family multiplied greatly. Here we see that God was beginning to fulfill his promises to the people of Abraham. He had said that he would bless them and multiply them. And here we see that he has begun to do that. But in the verses that follow, we also see that God's covenant people are opposed. We begin to read about that in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. As I mentioned, we don't know who this king was. We know he was a native Egyptian, and we know that he ruled during a time of deep cultural hostility toward outsiders. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, or as some other versions have it, and take possession of the land, which is probably more accurate. Now, we have to remember here that Exodus was a story that flowed seamlessly out of the story of Genesis. In Genesis, God had commanded the man and the woman be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, Genesis one twenty-eight. And so what we see in this story is that Israel is functioning kind of like a new Adam, a new start to humanity. God is blessing them and they are multiplying and filling the earth, Egypt in this case, and they are a clear threat to Pharaoh's dominion. I love what Douglas Stewart says here. He says, in a fallen world, the blessings of God are often so in conflict with the prevailing corrupt values of this world's culture that they function as a threat to those who are not aligned with God's will, Close quote. That is exactly right. As Israel blossomed and flourished in the path that God had established and promised to empower, they aroused the hostility of their godless neighbors. That is a thread that runs through the entirety of the biblical narrative. The seed of the woman are opposed by the seed of the serpent. This thread goes back to Genesis 3.15, and it runs all the way through to the end of the age. Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Here, the emphasis is on the harshness and brutality of this oppression. Based on what we know about where the Israelites were established in the Delta and where these store cities were in the Sinai region, this must have been a very cruel form of conscripted labor. A Hebrew man would have had to leave his family, travel to the worksite, which itself would have taken weeks, He would have done his work tour and then rotated back to his farmstead where his crops would have languished and his family would have suffered. And then he would have had to turn around and do the whole brutal circuit over again. The Egyptians assumed, of course, that this would result in a dramatic decline in the Hebrew fertility rate. After all, the men would be away from home for months at a time and then probably too tired to be romantically inclined, as it were, upon their return. That was the plan anyway, but it didn't work. The Hebrews continued to multiply, so Pharaoh decides to up the ante. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, this is the ancient version of Schindler's List. It is a particularly noteworthy example of people who took a risk to defy the king in order to defend the cause of human dignity. That is why these women are named. Pharaoh is not named, but these women are. Their stories will be told, and God blessed them for their heroism. He gave them families. Of course, most midwives in the ancient world were either older ladies, well past childbearing years, or barren ladies, who for one reason or another were unable to have children of their own. So this is another one of those Sarah stories, or Rebecca stories, or Hannah stories. The Bible is full of them. This is one of the ways that God blesses his people. The end result of this crafty and courageous deception is that for a while, anyway, no Hebrew babies were murdered. But eventually, Pharaoh learned of the deception and took the matter out of the hands of the midwives. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So scholars often unpack the deception of the midwives as follows. It seems likely that they told the Hebrew women, Do not call us until you have delivered the baby. You will have to do the hard part on your own. Call us when the baby is out. That will give us some wiggle room with our Egyptian supervisors. Then when the midwives were interviewed by Pharaoh or his representative, the midwives had a reasonable excuse. You said that we were to rig the delivery, make a little mistake here, or a sharp little twist there. But the Hebrew women are robust. By the time we get there, the baby's already out. So there really was nothing we could do at that point. Now, whether Pharaoh knew he was being deceived or not is not mentioned in the text. What is said is that Pharaoh took the next step and he ordered full-blown infanticide. Full-born babies, if they were boys, were to be cast alive into the Nile. As the Israelite people suffered this unimaginable cruelty, they may have remembered a prophecy spoken long ago and passed down from father to son across the ages. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Genesis 3.15. The devil hates our children. He is at war with them because he wants what we were given. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but the Lord has promised a deliverer. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. IntoTheWord.ca